Hello and welcome to the Purdue Ag Econ Podcast, the podcast for experts and innovators in agriculture. I'm Dane Erickson. On today's show, Dr. Foster and I talk with Dr. Carson Reeling about the field of environmental economics. Topics discussed include the economics behind bear and deer hunting permits, using economics as a tool for conservation, and finding the value of things which exist outside traditional markets. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Foster, Professor in Agricultural Economics at Purdue, and with me is my co-host, Dane Erickson, who is a senior in Agricultural Economics here at Purdue. Dane, how are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. We have with us today a guest who's among this uh, group of young new faculty members here in Agricultural Economics that we're hoping over the next uh, you know, year or so we'll be able to introduce to our listeners, and that's Professor Carson Reeling. Carson, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me out here. All right. Well, hey, Carson, um, uh, as I recall, you were once a Purdue student. Can you just kind of fill us in as to how you ended up here at Purdue as a professor in agricultural economics? Yeah, so like I said, I uh, did my undergraduate at University of San Diego, graduated in 2009, and then I came out to Purdue, uh, sort of, it's a bit of an embarrassing story, but I, I really wanted to go on and, and do more economics. Uh, that was really interesting to me. It came on really strong my last two years of undergrad, but I didn't want to take macroeconomics. I had no interest in that whatsoever. And I found out, of course, in ag econ, the focus is more on applied microeconomics. And so that really spoke to me. So uh, found Purdue. I can't remember how I even came across Purdue all the way out from California. Uh, came here, fell in love with it. Uh, very happy to be at Purdue. There's just this weird energy on campus that I can't quite explain, but it, it just, it was intoxicating. Uh, went to Michigan State for a PhD. Uh, my first academic job was at uh, Western Michigan up in Kalamazoo. Uh, and then three years later, uh, I came back here. The, the opportunity to, to, camp, to come back as an assistant professor arose, and it was just too great to turn down. So uh, very happy to be back here. There is something special about the Purdue energy. I think, um, you know, it's hard to explain, and, um, but uh, certainly paid off this year, I think, with COVID. You know, I mean, it's yeah. just the Purdue spirit um, has been fantastic and the way Purdue students and faculty and staff have stepped up and dealt with with uh, the challenges of COVID is I think just part of what you're talking about right yeah, that, yeah we're all we're all, we, we're all Purdue man that's just what yeah. we are <laughs> it is kind cool. of a marketing thing but it is absolutely true there's just a kind of a boilermaker spirit that uh, yeah. sounds corny but man it's there's something yeah. to it well we're certainly uh, happy to have you back here um and uh, part of the back is part of the Purdue family and especially in Ag Econ. And um, before we started the recording, you were telling me that you had taken over uh, teaching the course that Wally Tyner used to teach. And um, so that kind of leads us, I think, into, you know, what your general area of research and teaching might be. And maybe you can kind of pitch us off there in that direction. Yeah, sure. So I'm an environmental economist by training, uh, which means uh, basically I study how to how to manage the environment to maximize social net benefits. Right. So if we if we take into account not only, um, 
you know, human well-being, but also uh, try to account for the effects that we have on the environment? How should we man? How, how should we design policies? Uh, how should we design emission standards and water quality standards and things like that to make society as well off as we possibly can? And so, um, in that spirit, I was assigned uh, my first class that I was assigned here. Uh, there were two of them. Uh, the first was a benefit cost analysis course. Uh, as you mentioned, was was taught by the late uh, Wally Tyner. Uh, that teaches people, of course, how to do benefit cost analysis from an uh, environmental perspective. My own uh, spin on that, which we'll, I think, talk about a little bit more later, uh, is talk about how do we place dollar values on the environment, right? How much is water quality worth? How much is air quality worth? So that when we design policies or new regulations or new laws or whatever, how can we analyze the effect that we have not only on people's jobs and the economy, but also, um, you know, how do those no new policies affect human well-being in terms of environmental quality? Uh, and of course, the other the other class I teach, uh, this is where I met Dane, in fact, is my undergraduate environmental and natural resources course. Uh, I taught that Back when I was at Western Michigan University, I taught it two times a semester for uh, at least for, for three years. So uh, it's something I really like doing and, and it's a big undergraduate class. So I get to meet lots of cool people like Dane and uh, I've, I've really enjoyed that part of it. And that all is related to my research, which again, focuses on this issue of non-market valuation. How do we design or sorry, how do we, um, well, yeah, how do, how do we come up with ways to try and figure out what is, air quality worth? What's water quality worth? What, is, what are recreational opportunities worth, right? Things like that. So Dr. Reeling, I know there's a lot that goes into non-market valuation and there's a lot of methods which make it able to happen. So could you talk about how that is done and the process by which you value something which doesn't quite fit into a traditional market? Yeah. So it's actually pretty intuitive. So uh, there are two general approaches you can use to value uh, non-market goods and services. And as Dane said, these are, these are things that give us utility. They make us better off, but they're not necessarily traded in markets. So again, it could be environmental quality, could be re recreational opportunities, you know, things like that. The, the two different approaches, there's one called uh, revealed preferences, uh, a revealed preference approach. This approach, basically, uh, if you're an economist, you stand back and you watch how people interact or how people behave, and then you try and figure out how that behavior changes when something like environmental quality changes. And you can use observations of that behavioral change to try and back out estimates of people's willingness to pay for more environmental quality. So a good example of that might be, uh, let's suppose you have an oil spill or something like that that contaminates a bunch of beaches. You might have data about how often people visit a beach or a set of beaches before that oil spill happens. Then the oil spill happens, it contaminates the beach, nobody wants to go there anymore. The number of visitors goes down, maybe people stop going to the beach altogether, maybe they go to different beaches. You can try and back out estimates of what it costs people to go to that beach and how much their, their travel costs or the, basically their expenditures on those trips change after that oil spill and, and through a little bit of statistical magic, you can back out how that change in behavior corresponds to what they're willing to pay to avoid that, that uh, risk posed by that oil spill. The other approach, and, and this is something uh, Dane's helping me out with, is uh, a stated preferences approach where instead of just trying to stand back and watch how people's behavior changes following some environmental catastrophe, uh, you could just ask them, you know, with a survey, hey, what are you willing to pay uh, to avoid 
some oil spill on this beach, what would you be willing to pay for improved environmental quality in some other setting? Again, these are called stated preference approaches, and they're uh, a little bit more contentious in the sense that uh, because revealed preference approaches are based on actual observations of behavior, uh, people like them. We can we can trust them because they're you know people are putting their money where their where their mouth is. With stated preference approaches, if we're just asking you how much are you willing to pay for some good, uh, that's hypothetical, right? And and some famous people have said if you if you ask hypothetical questions, you can expect hypothetical answers. So there's a lot of of stuff that goes into designing these surveys in a way that elicits truthful responses. So talk to us maybe a little bit about some of the research that you're doing or have done recently in this area. I mean, what are some, what are some compelling applications? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll talk about two of them and maybe, maybe Dan and I can talk about the one he's, he's working with me on. Uh, I've got two examples. One would be a revealed preference approach. Uh, I got some uh, data back when I was a, a graduate student at Michigan State at a class project. We had a, a non-market valuation class and we had to come up with some term project and I didn't have any data. So the teacher gave me some and it ended up being uh, data on pretty much everybody in the state of Michigan who had gone bear hunting uh, in the years 2008 to 2009. I knew exactly uh, where they lived. I knew how much it cost them to drive to the middle of different bear hunting zones and all that stuff. So we used that data to try and back out uh, what we call a travel cost model, kind of what I was describing with the oil spill example earlier. Uh, and that travel cost model allowed us to estimate willingness to pay for bear hunting in Michigan, which is not that interesting. But the interesting part that came out of that study was um, actually Michigan has some pretty weird or not weird, but uh, unique means of handing out bear hunting permits. They use what's called a preference point lottery. So if you want to go hunting for bears in Michigan, you apply for a permit, you tell the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, which bear hunting zone you want to go hunting in and when you want to go hunting there. There are three different seasons. Everybody else does the same thing. Everybody makes their first and, and second choice of where they want to go hunting. And then they basically draw names for, the, for those permits. If you win a permit, great, you get to go hunting. If you don't win a permit, you get instead what's called a preference point for next year's lottery. Every year, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources ranks people according to their preference point stock and gives permits out in order to those with the most preference points. That's how they allocate these permits. So the people who go without hunting the longest have the most preference points and thus are more likely to win a given permit the following year. And, and what's interesting about this is that uh, this exact type of lottery has been has been shown theoretically in economics to try to actually induce more efficient allocation of scarce goods and services, right? If you think about it, uh, you know, just going back to our basic micro theory class, markets work because we have to pay cash for things, right? There's an opportunity cost anytime we spend money on something. We have to give up the opportunity to buy something else with that cash. If we just have a normal lottery where we're drawing names out of a hat. There are no opportunity costs, right? I'm going to apply for whatever hunt I want to go to as long as the expected utility from going there is positive. There's no opportunity cost to me. But with this preference point lottery, we have not cash that we're spending, but we have sort of an artificial currency in the form of these preference points. When we cash in our preference point stock to go hunting, that means our preference point stock gets reset to zero. 
we have to wait more and more and more time to go hunting again in the future, which means we have incentives to think really long and hard about choosing where and when we want to hunt. Okay, so that induces an opportunity cost that acts a lot like cash, and thus those, those preference point lotteries uh, actually are pretty efficient in terms of allocating goods and services. And so we were able to show that, and uh, hopefully we'll get some pretty nice uh, publications out of that as a result. But then that's, uh, so that's one. Uh, the other one, maybe maybe Dane can uh, introduce a little bit too. He's He's been with me since the beginning on that one. Dane, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, so what... I have had the opportunity to work with Dr. Reeling on lately is working with the Indiana DNR on a stated preference survey using uh, choice experiments. So uh, Dr. Reeling, you may, might be able to help me out with this, but um, the goal is essentially to have effectively priced licenses and uh, really understand what people are willing to pay with, with a deer license. That's right. So the, in Indiana, if you are a deer hunter, even if you're not, you may know the, the, the license price is, is absurdly cheap. It's like $25 to, or was it 20, $24 for a single season? I only buy the bundle, so I can't remember what a single tag's worth. Uh, but if you go out to California or something there, you know, $50, 10 years ago, I can't, I can't imagine what they are now. Uh, so they're cheap. Permits are cheap. Uh, there's also, it's very confusing. If you go and you read the, the uh, Indiana hunting and, and trapping guide, there are five pages of rules and regulations that tell you what permit you need to hunt at a particular time in a particular place for a particular, uh, you know, using a particular equipment. Uh, they offer different products. Like you have a bundle, which is a bundle of three different licenses. You can shoot three does or uh, two does and a buck. But if you shoot those does they have to count towards your bonus antlerless limit which varies by county and can change from year to year and it's a big big complicated process i i, I hunt myself and it, it took me two years of hunting and reading this digest and i have a phd right so i should know how this works but it took me two years of reading those rules and regulations to figure out that i was hunting legally and so the indiana department of natural resources is interested in not only uh they're not proposing anything. I want to make that clear, but they are interested in considering changes to license pricing and also changing uh, the structure of, in, of deer hunting permits in Indiana to try and simplify things uh, and maybe offer new uh, innovative licensing products, or, you know, maybe going back to a lifetime deer license that they've offered in the past, you know, things like that. They're just, and, and our role in this, again, as Dane mentioned, would be to just try and figure out what are people actually willing to pay for these different types of licenses. Deer hunting is one of the DNR's biggest revenue sources. And of course, there's a huge number of people that just hunt their own land. And so they, they, we need to make sure that we price licenses adequately to ensure that the DNR keeps their revenues up and they can keep doing all the good work that they do. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, you know, for the hunters, I think, um, you know, there's pretty broad support understanding that that license fee goes towards maintaining habitat and mm -hmm. other things to keep the deer herd healthy. Um, you know, we know we have pressures with, um, you know, exotic, uh, issues on uh, wasting disease and things right. like that potentially and so having the dnr out there is a really important part of the formula so just you know maybe to be a little bit provocative or thinking about um you know big picture current events things that we're reading a lot in the news 
Um, climate change is all over the place. So um, uh, is valuing carbon emissions or um, uh, that sort of thing that might be contributing to greenhouse gases something that we could think about using non-market valuation techniques? Yeah, definitely. That, so uh, what, what people, what we would be valuing in that case is more the environmental impacts that people directly feel from, from carbon emissions. So if you wanted to talk about uh, increased risk of uh, invasive species in a, in a nature preserve that you really like or increased uh, risk of disease burden, right? So a lot of the, the wildlife diseases and a lot of the uh, mosquito-borne diseases that everybody worries about in the tropics, they're inching their way up farther and farther, more northern latitudes. And so these are things that obviously make us worse off individually. They decrease our utility. And so they are things that uh, we could use non-market valuation to try and estimate. How does having a better idea of the environment's value affect our ability to uh, contribute to preserving it? Well, this is important because it, <laughs> whenever we whenever we do anything, the government level say, uh, there's always a benefit cost analysis associated with that, right? So. Um, you know, any anytime we pass some new uh, regulations to preserve environmental quality or or whatever, we know the costs of that. Generally speaking, we know the costs of that. But if there are non-market benefits associated with that, improvements in environmental quality or reductions in carbon emissions or whatever, unless we have some way of valuing those explicitly, the implicit value. Is going to be zero, right? If we if we say, oh, we can't value uh, increased disease burden from increased global temperatures. We if we, we can't value the you know carbon emissions. Okay, well, if I'm a practical person, I'm saying if you can't value those things, I'm just going to assign them a default value of zero. And then when I do my benefit cost analysis, I've got zero benefits, a lot of costs, right? Mitigate mitigating climate change and all this stuff costs a lot of money. Uh, so if I'm doing my benefit cost analysis, all of a sudden it's all costs, you know, protecting the environment doesn't happen in that case. So, so non-market valuation in general, and particularly around issues of climate change, where we know the costs are massive, we need to be doing a good job of valuing the benefits that come from these environmental uh, policies and projects as well. Otherwise, like I said, the default answer will be, we just don't do enough environmental preservation. Yeah, well, thank you, Dr. Reeling, too, for, you know, involving students. I, I know that being a young ag econ student, it seems like you're just drawing a lot of lines, you know, supply and demand. And yeah, right. Uh, e econ can seem a little bit uh, repetitive, but, you know, I, I'd encourage any any young student to take 406 and see about some <laughs> of the applications and some of the more interesting sides of economics. Yeah, and that's that was my experience as a student, too. I um, my first couple of years in undergraduate. I was actually on the crew team out in San Diego and that's all I, that's all I existed to do, man. Econ never captured my attention, but it was just a means of getting to be able to row boats. And so it was fine. Then I quit the crew team and I started focusing more on, on classes. And it just happened to be that, you know, you made the leap from the, the basic micro theory classes to, Hey, here's what you can do with all that micro theory. You can study human uh, labor. You can study the environment. You can do all this cool stuff. 
and then it just kind of my mind blew wide open. I thought, man, this is this is a really powerful uh, discipline that we work in, right? It's uh, in many ways just as powerful as engineering or physics or anything else you might study here, because human interactions or human behavior controls how effective those engineered systems are. So we're just as important as, as anything else that happens on this campus, for sure. You've been listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. You can visit the department at www.agecon.purdue.edu. Um, you can like us on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter. Everybody have a great day. Thank you.